0: Uh, iq is an entrepreneur and technology leader currently the co-founder of phoenix or phoenix and previously the cto of circ which was acquired by bird he leads engineering product data and design teams that has been advising startups in different stages and sectors including mobility e-commerce and fintech with a focus on tech architecture processes and teams he spent most of his early career in the valley working for vmware facebook and lumio he then moved to dubai and both the in-house engineering team for kareem the leading ride-hailing provider and super app in the MENA region, scaling the tech team 250 plus engineers. He then went to Lyft in Munich to lead the autonomous driving team working on AI ML for AVs. IQ has several patents and has participated in tech innovation and exponential business growth in multiple markets and verticals. He went to Stanford for graduate school where he got an MS in electrical engineering and MS as well in computational math. Um, IQ, welcome. Thanks a lot for joining us. Welcome to Ben.
1: Thank you. Pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity.
0: For sure, here, you know, where did you grow up, and what did you aspire to be when you were younger?
1: Ah, good question. Um, I grew up in Pakistan in a fairly small place in the interior Sindh province, um, and uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's a huge contrast in like uh, where I grew up, and uh, oh, then later in my career, what things I worked on. Um, for example, in this town, we didn't even have cars. Uh, the the prevalent mode of mobility was actually horse carts. Um, And um, there were no libraries, for example. And it's a a little bit uh, exceptional path, uh, I would say. I wasn't uh, dreaming of, for example, going to Stanford uh, in my undergrad when uh, other students, uh, fellow students mentioned Stanford. I was like, what is that? (laughs) Um, So I think like lots of things... uh, went favorably uh, obviously a lot of hard work too but uh, i also got lucky on a number of occasions um, i think one thing right from the beginning um that was somehow incepted in my mind was that i wanted to be an engineer and uh, at least at least that much uh, was a theme throughout my life
0: i can imagine even like the place you grew up i mean to even go to uni to, to go for higher studies itself was quite of an achievement. And then obviously, you know, beyond that, um, but that was, you know, it's, it's great how these things uh, end up working out. And so for you, you know, what was the decision process then? Okay. Engineering, but there's different types of engineering, right? How did you end up kind of being in the, let's say computer science, or let's, let's say in the technology space.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good question. So in undergrad, I was quite inclined to do the foundations of fundamentals. So I, picked a major which was kind of like a generic major it was called engineering sciences it had quite a bit of math and physics uh, but I took courses all over the place like from mechanical engineering from electrical or electronics engineering computer science mostly mostly electronics engineering and um, um, it was kind of like a way to delay picking a concentration area but uh, mostly I was like Uh, The the things that I enjoyed the most and I was also really good at uh, was software engineering, um, programming, and generally software engineering, building the right abstractions for software. Right from early on, like even when I wasn't building very large scale systems, um, building it in a way that it's easy to extend and easy to scale, uh, that was something that clicked with me the most. and then after undergrad, the first job was in software. And then when I went to US, first um, in Pennsylvania, I did uh, a master's in embedded systems and then um, electrical engineering at Stanford Computational Math. So I actually didn't have uh, a single degree in computer science, uh, but all three master's degrees were actually um, like the coursework was quite concentrated in software. Um, and then I started working in the Valley at uh, VMware, which is one of the leading software companies um, in the world. And back then, uh, Google and VMware were the two most, um, um, the two companies uh, that people aspired to work at the most. Um, so it was great for early career also um, after graduation um, that um, I got to learn so much from uh, Folks at VM were uh, really, really good talent, um, experienced people, and also a great environment, which where even junior engineers were empowered and given quite a bit of freedom, quite a bit of mentorship. I mean, for
0: for you and for for people like us, you know, from our part of the world, you you hit the lottery, right? You 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 got your higher studies you went abroad you settled in the valley you've got a job at you know this some you know big tech and obviously a very well known place like vmware and a few other places but did you always have an itch to do something of your own or to do something entrepreneurial um
1: yeah so i think entrepreneurship um, um the seed for entrepreneurship was there um but the Uh, The courage to do that in early career maybe was uh, lacking a bit. Um, And also uh, just knowing where to start um, and how to do it. So after spending about nine years, over nine years at VMware, where I worked on a lot of different things um, in tech, like from UX design down to DB architecture. um, I mean, this is, I guess, like another theme um, uh, or thing that I associate with that... um, I don't see a lot of boundaries in terms of like my training is in X, so I cannot do Y sort of a thing. Um, so I dabbled with UX design even. And uh, a lot of the times uh, uh, people don't really mind if you, let's say, bring ideas and contribute to their domains. And there's obviously sometimes there is a territoriality as well. But, um, but I, I've worked with a lot of great teams where what mattered the most was like, what is the idea and does it have merit or not? So dabbled with UX design and then like um, deep systems level things as well. Uh, But a lot of work in building uh, platforms um, like middleware and APIs that enable the ecosystem. So the VMware has a huge ecosystem, lots of companies integrate with it. And um, this is also a great way to have uh, persistence and footprint in, uh, in the market, that there is only so much you can do yourself. If you allow, start opening yourself up and allow other businesses to integrate with you, um, then you get this multiplicative factor. And VMware executed that strategy really well. So I did quite a bit of work there too. Um, but after like you know, spending um over nine years at VMware, um I for for the first time I uh, started pitching and pitched the ideas to some investors and had quite a bit of interest from investors too, um, uh, commitments, but that didn't exactly work out because at that time um, my co-founders uh, weren't quite ready to jump in. Um, so it, you know it didn't didn't exactly the timing didn't turn out to be exactly right. Um, so then I went to Facebook and. Uh, you know, continued with the regular job track and worked on uh, some very interesting things at Facebook. It was a great time uh, to be there as well. Around 2013, when uh, Facebook acquired WhatsApp and Instagram and Oculus and reached its uh, first 1 billion users. So learned a lot about experimentation-driven product development. So in some ways, because like, Even though Facebook was very big at the time, I learned quite a bit about entrepreneurship there um, because when you are building something, you uh, cannot really plan out like what exactly the product would be and how to execute on it. You learn quite a bit from experimentation. And it's really important for startups to have that mentality, like the mentality of A-B testing, learning from the consumers by investing the least amount into development and then just trying it out with the customers and getting feedback. Um, So it was was a great training ground for that. Um, Also great training ground for scaling to like, for example, um, at that time, Facebook used to hire about 100 engineers every two weeks and onboarding that many engineers requires like uh, an assembly line like process. Um, and even though I didn't know back then, but like later on, this this was a useful learning also. At at Kareem, we were um, at one point at, at the peak, we were recruiting uh, and onboarding 20 engineers per month. So not 100 every two weeks, but 20 per month is still quite a bit. And um, I use a lot of like the same models that Facebook uses for uh, for quick onboarding of engineers and allocation to different uh, different teams within the engineering organization.
0: So experimentation at scale and also creating ecosystems, those are some of the lessons, I guess, from kind of your big tech um, experience. Yes. Yeah. And, and then, you know, it's a good segue to Kareem. And I think a lot of us are familiar with Kareem. It's the largest a super app in the MENA region. Uh, I believe it was bought by Uber and it was yes. one of the big unicorn stories out of MENA as well. And obviously with the large presence in Pakistan, um, for you, how did, how did the opportunity come about? And did you think about, I mean, did you think about the opportunity cost of staying in the Valley versus let's say, working on something you know back in this region?
1: Yeah, yeah. So um, uh, Mudassar, the CEO and co-founder of uh, Kareem, um, he had been at stanford at the same time that i was there so we we knew each other uh, we hadn't uh, kept in touch that much but um, but after kareem's uh, big round of funding in uh, 2015 um they wanted to bring engineering in house so prior to that engineering was all outsourced like nearly 100% uh, outsourced um to developer agencies or software houses in pakistan and um after the big investment obviously um, it was uh, things were very serious like you have uh, like a lot of money to build this uh, business into um, a, a really large uh, business and like you know shoot for unicorn and and then having all engineering outsources is a big risk uh, you want to have institutional engineering knowledge uh, as a tech company so needed to bring it in-house. And the first step toward that was uh, getting the engineering leader. So I um, spoke to them um, for the for the role and really found Mudassir and Magnus, the co-founders, very inspiring. And the success uh, thus far um, was uh, exemplary. Like uh, there are very few companies in the Middle East that grew like this. Um, and also the institution they had built, the team they had put together, the culture, the energy, um, it didn't feel any different from uh, the Bay Area companies, like Con Valley companies. Obviously, um, lots of uh, methods and processes were different. Things were not as systematic in some cases. There's a lot of chaos when you're growing, uh, obviously when you're growing this fast and you haven't had the time to really iron out the the kinks uh, but but the energy was there and like just a whole bunch of genuine authentic people uh, that really believed in the mission so it was uh, virtually a no-brainer for me that this is very special um and I want to take that opportunity so move to Dubai uh, to join it um yes there is there is a thought on the back of your mind that uh, you know, Valley is also very special and um like leaving from there may incur an opportunity cost but uh companies like kareem are also not born every day so it's it was a very unusual uh, and special opportunity
0: And you know, starting out, so you have to kind of build this engineer, you have to bring engineering in house, kind of you have to build a team. What's the process? You know, who were kind of your first hires? Where did they come from? Were they also, you know, X Valley folks like like you? Um, you know, where did you know what kind of schools did you recruit from? Was it in Pakistan? Was it in
1: MENA? Yeah. So um one of the first steps uh, we took was to acquire part of the team in Pakistan that we had with the outsourcing company. Um, so we acquired or acquired hired about 15 engineers in Karachi. And at the same time, um, I established a recruiting function in Dubai. So we didn't have uh, tech recruiters or really the context or background or knowledge or experience of hiring engineers. So I started with the recruiters and mentored them into like how to look for great talent, uh, where to find it, and established, the interviewing processes fashioned them quite a bit after the silicon valley uh, processes like facebook google etc a lot of like netflix they have uh, these like four or five interview process uh, which, which is primarily focused on technical questions coding questions but also finding um, cultural fit um, so i adopted that process with some of my own customizations for example um, I used to require a cross-functional interview, um, meaning that an engineer needed to be interviewed by someone outside of engineering as well. So, for example, product or design or one of the business functions. And the purpose was um, twofold. One, that we get to assess the broader cultural fit and to also get broader buy-in. Um, so get input from Outside of engineering as well, on um, how good a fit uh, somebody is for engineering, and it's, it also starts to like establish those relationships early on, rather than like after you have hired, um, you, you, the candidate starts to connect with the broader organization uh, right from the beginning. And another customization I had was that I had uh, we had three locations for engineering: Karachi, Dubai, and Berlin. Um, I used to require a cross-location interview as well. So again, same purpose, um, have broader buy-in and also have consistency of uh, the bar in acquiring, in hiring talent. Um, so that like Karachi, Dubai or Berlin don't get to like come to be known as like uh, less less or more than the other locations in terms of how good they are. Um, so the, there were these customizations, but otherwise like very much inspired uh, from the top tech companies. Um, <clears throat> so set up the recruiting function um, and then started recruiting in Dubai and added uh, Berlin as a tech hub, um, as I mentioned. So we, we didn't operate in Europe, but I wanted to have a um, tech location outside of the region because back in 2016, it wasn't uh, fully clear that we would be able to land all the talent that we needed um, to obviously like operate in a very competitive space. And uh, we had a huge competitor uh, who had 2000 engineers in San Francisco. So I wanted to have like sort of like an insurance that we have another location that if um, we wanted to get engineers who are experienced in data science, machine learning, or building large scale distributed systems, and we couldn't find them in Dubai or Karachi, we would be able to land them in Europe. And Berlin was a great location because, like the startup uh, ecosystem is great there, um, and it came very handy. We grew Berlin quite fast as well, so uh, it played an instrumental role in overall tech strategy. Um, but yeah, we we were looking uh, for talent everywhere. Um, we also looked for folks in the Bay Area, but uh, the conversion rate was not that high like lots of people would be interested in moving uh but eventually would get jitters (laughs) about leaving the bay as maybe you suspected as well um but so like lots of lots of people joined from nearly everywhere um not so much from us but some folks from us as well and
0: I remember at PAC launch, I think Mudassar talked a little bit about how there was a bit of pushback, but I think externally, as well as internally, you know, when, you know, you built this Berlin kind of R&D center, because, hey, this is a media company. In many ways, it's a Pakistani company. Um, I mean, could you tell us a little bit about that as well?
1: Yeah, I know internally, um, there was actually quite a bit of uh, support also, like from Mudassar and Magnus. And I would say like, um, one of the values that Kareem had was uh, being bold and it was actually practice as well so that we made courageous decisions. But yeah, I mean, something like, it, something big like this, is not that easy to pull off. And uh, obviously it requires quite a bit of expense and it's like quite far. It's not that easy. Like you don't have direct flights from Dubai to Berlin. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean different culture and and obviously later on, um, like we we had to deal with some of the cultural differences too. For example, like having engineers on call in Germany is not as straightforward or simple as uh, you might think. Um, so there is like some differences along the lines of like how like would you work the nights or not or would you work the weekends or not? Um, but I would say we navigated those those challenges, uh, fairly well, and eventually won over the support also, like broadly, um, because uh, Berlin did play a pretty significant uh, role in in the overall tech execution.
0: Looking at your kind of bio in this time, you know, you led everything, right? Engineering, data science, mobile apps, web backend data pipelines, BI integrations, uh, internal and external APIs, platform services, everything. Um, And you mentioned Uber and, you know, how do you compete against the tech resources of a a company that has, you know, 10 X the number of engineers that that you do. And I would imagine there's a lot of prioritization that goes through. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Like where you prioritize your time and resources?
1: Um, Yeah. So um, a lot of my time was going into recruiting, of course, um, but um, another thing that you typically find in uh, top Tech companies is that um, engineering directors or VPs or in engineering leadership is also very technical. Um, and engineers like to have their leaders who are technically involved and can understand and uh, ideally also to some extent contribute uh, to the thinking and guide them. Um, so this is this is almost a universal. Um, no matter where you go, um, engineers like to have. Uh, managers or bosses or leadership that is technically savvy and uh, I've sort of like kept that thing with me and also in recruiting I always keep in mind like when hiring engineering managers or directors or VPs that um, they should be technically savvy Um, um, and uh, part of that, um, that ethos is that you then engage with engineers at a technical level too so um, i used to engage uh, with them uh, for architectural choices and like uh, be involved within the in, in those discussions but uh, most of the decision making was with the engineers themselves and uh, the organization obviously was very large so it's it's not uh, practical to get involved with a lot of tech development uh, but we overall we built um a, a pretty good cross-functional organization. So a lot of priorities in terms of what was built for product uh, came from the product organization. And we had a cross-functional team, um, like at various levels and fairly good collaboration between uh, between the different functions, including design also. Um, so yeah, and, and then at one point, um, data science and ML also became pretty significant for us and we um, invested uh, quite a bit into, um, I would say, like primarily two problems. One was uh, marketplace efficiency. So finding the best match for a given ride request, um, there is quite a big difference you can make by shaving off a few seconds per ride on average, or finding the optimal match. And there are lots of things going there. Like, for example, keeping track of the moving assets in this case, the cars and which direction they are going, and using the uh, write, um, map solutions. Um, and, um, eventually we used, uh, we had enough data that we didn't even u- need to use the maps. Uh, we were just like based on our own historical data. We were able to compute ETAs, uh, between the driver or captain and the passenger requesting the right things like that. And the other big area was, um fraud uh, prevention so there is quite a bit of driver-side uh, fraud in the ride-hailing space and um uh, there was um we had really good data scientists working on that um so those were very interesting problems so depending on um like when something uh, was more or less important and what were the the, the biggest ROI topics I would engage technically but a lot of time just went into b- recruiting and building the organization also.
0: So I, I guess then that relates to kind of like time to fill or kind of I guess the match rate. um and then also I guess supply side utilization, um you know on the on the driver's side in terms of some of the metrics you're prioritizing for or optimizing for. Um, were there from a technology standpoint, were there uh, or even from a business standpoint, in this journey, were there any particular near-death experiences that you guys faced um, and, and learned from?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, good question. I would say, like, definitely it, it, there were moments which felt like near-death. <laughs> but, uh, so, like, we had a lot of reliability-related issues. And uh, the tech was built uh, for the first several years. It was built with the only features prioritization in mind. So... Uh, features needed to be built and they needed to be built uh, really fast. So um, the uh, the reliability concerns or scalability concerns uh, took the uh, back burner. Um, they were not prioritized and there was no time to do that. So, Obviously, um, that means a lot of tech debt. And then uh, when you have a service that's running 24-7, um, yeah, you, uh, re-architecting or rewriting anything means like you have to do it within the working system. And that means um, risk of uh, outages also incidents as well. So whenever you deploy a change into the system, there is a risk of something going down. If you are not deploying them continuously then or b- and building things on the side, then it drifts from the, from the functioning system, right? So you wanna do it um, continuously um, through a ci so like deploy it into the system, so you're constantly testing, but whenever you're deploying change, you're also risking, um, incidents or, um, failures. And, um, so, so reliability issues was something that we had to deal with. Like we, we started rewriting some of the pieces, um, as microservices So went from the monolith to microservices and, um, that took quite a bit of investment and, um, uh, it took quite a bit of time as well. And, um, one of the learnings from that is that um, if you have a good PMF, uh, you should start uh, focusing on doing things the right way, the proper way, sooner rather than later. So if you don't have the PMF, then obviously you don't have the luxury to build architectures or um, have the best practices applied uh, right from the beginning You because you're experimenting with what you want to build. But once you hit tmf then you should focus on reliability um, which obviously translates into user experience and extensibility extensibility meaning that how easy it is to build new features so if you do things uh, relatively right um, the overhead of doing things right is relatively small compared to the benefit that you gain um, so that's that's one thing that like you know i'm a staunch supporter now of um, that. You should apply the best practices or start applying them sooner rather than later. And, but I imagine there's a bit of
0: a, um, a tension, I guess, in terms of how much do you continue experimenting versus you know how that optimizing for reliability. Once again, when you have relatively limited resources, uh, but I, I kind of see your your point as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah there are
1: there are trade offs. But um, another thing is that if somebody has. Um, so experience is very useful. If you have engineers who have previously done things um, which are you know, relevant to what you're doing. So let's say that it's um, a real-time system. Even if it's not related to mobility, um, it's a, it's a large-scale real-time system. Um, they would typically bring the knowledge and experience um, for building, right, things the right way or making the right design choices or right architectural choices and with those your overhead is not necessarily very high overhead is typically high when you're having uh, the engineer if the engineers are having to learn along the way and they have to do research or study or like change their coding uh, paradigm uh, then um, it's quite a bit of overhead because you are Learning along the way, you don't really know, and you're not sure about it either. Um, But if you have some experienced people, then that overhead also goes down. Another thing, you
0: know, I always wanted to ask for the example of a company like Kareem, which is highly localized for a particular market versus competing against an international Goliath like Uber, what was the secret sauce or sauces that allowed Kareem to compete um, to the point where Uber had to buy it out?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So there were quite a bit of localizations we did. So, for example, integrations with partners for like promotional programs, having relationships with the regulatory or transport authorities um, and then features or like even brand that was a localized uh, brand. So like it, it was from the region and people associated with it quite a bit. But it was also a cool brand. Um, so a lot of a lot of those things went into it, um, and I think like another important piece was that we had quite a bit of focus on um, treating the customer and the captain right, um, and um, you you could actually the customer could could sense the difference in the service also uh, between us and uh, Uber, um, obviously. Uh, Uber had efficiency on their side. So they had fewer people in customer service, for example, and that meant like customer service costs are lower. Uh, But but if you wanted to get a hold of somebody uh, from Uber, it would be very difficult. So there were different types of things that the two companies uh, sort of like placed an importance on. And that did make a, a difference and obviously like uh, at kareem people cared a lot um like colleagues cared a lot about um, building providing those great experiences and building uh an inspiring organization so those things definitely helped and yeah eventually uber acquired uber um did execute similar strategy in some other parts of the world too um with the with the leading competitor in those respective areas,
0: and so it it sounds a bit like you know one culture and 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 second, even though you know a company like Uber had massive resources, it was kind of diluted when you you know when it operates across so many markets and then there's only so much kind of localization or focus you can kind of give to a market like Mina,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. I think like maybe not that relevant to this, but like, generally speaking, um, when you are big and you have a lot of money are also less efficient. Uh, So there is a curse of like having more funds or being big also. Um, When you are smaller, you have to do ruthless prioritization. Um, And your customer doesn't necessarily care about a lot of features. They care about like the core experience working well. Uh, So generally, generally it's a good strategy to focus on um, like if you're building something that the customer really likes or wants, uh, there is an actual need out there, then um, building all those bells and whistles um, is less less valuable than than the team often tends to think.
0: And then, you know, I think that's a good segue then to kind of, you know, you became part of this famed Kareem Mafia, which, you know, I'd love for you to tell us about but and, and then you did kind of jump into entrepreneurship with Cirque um, so how did that come about why why that particular opportunity and, and maybe you could also explain for the audience what Cirque was or is for Europe
1: yeah so um, from Karima I went to Lyft uh, to lead the autonomous driving team based out of Munich and obviously it's a technically very interesting problem but it's also a very long-term project so um, it's let's say, five to 10 years out, um, or was at least, uh, back when I was there. Um, and um, um, also, like um, now, it's only OEMs are focusing, or mostly just OEMs are focusing on the autonomous driving problem. So Lyft also sold it to Toyota, for example, later on. Um, but at that time, micromobility was taking off and it had emerged as um, one of the solutions to last mile mobility problem so rather than having cars um, be the sole solution is like a lot of trips are less than five kilometers or less than three kilometers Um, so why use such a big car to transport just one person um, for a short distance when you can have uh, smaller vehicles and this thing was enabled by like miniaturization of the motor and a uh, good performance on batteries and uh, internet connectivity through devices, IoT devices um, that allow uh, the use of app to lock and lock the vehicles. Um, so I didn't join um, CERC uh, right at the beginning. Um, you can say I was a later stage co-founder, um, but Karim, uh, sorry, um, CERC, um previously called Flash, was one of the most well-funded companies um, in Europe uh, it raised the largest series round in, in Europe's history and uh, we expanded really fast as well um we um, you know at at our peak we were operating in 40 cities across uh, 10 countries plus abu dhabi um in uae and um, uh, had quite a large fleet and also tech on the tech front, we build the full tech stack in-house, uh, which includes the mobile apps, uh, the backend, uh, the um, the cloud services and DevOps, the connectivity with the IoT devices, um, specifically f- to track those um, vehicles and also to lock and lock remotely. Um, and obviously it in- involves the hardware problem also, supply chain. So. I traveled quite a bit to China as well um, to help out with uh, some of the supply chain challenges that we are having. Um, So a a truly full stack problem, uh, because like previously I had worked on software quite a bit, but this involved hardware also. And uh, hardware is fraught with a different sort of challenges. So we also ran into some of them, the first generation vehicle uh, had uh, some failure modes um, systematic failure modes so that led to quite a bit of uh, problems with the, with our fleet as well um the reliability of the fleet um but but lots of learnings like in in blue managing blue collar labor um with the supply chain and hardware um how to be more capital efficient or how not to be capital inefficient so uh, because we were well funded, uh, as I mentioned, like there is there is a curse of being really well funded as well. Um, so we were quite well funded. And uh, in the beginning, we were not as capital efficient um, because the thesis was that it's a space where we need to expand really quickly. So we need to go to all the countries and cities and plant a flag. Later, it turned out that it was more about unit economics. And I guess, like, this is generally the case now, like uh, in the post. Uh, zero interest world. Everybody's realizing the importance of uh, the unit economics. Uh, but you know, I got a taste of that first experience, uh, uh, first hand, with the CERC experience as well. Um, and then after the exit to Bird, uh, we decided to myself and uh, my former colleague. We decided to co-found uh, the startup um, Phoenix. Um, This time around just focused on the region, on the Gulf region, because we had pretty good numbers in uh, Abu Dhabi. And also um, the vision was a little bit different. We wanted to um, build a more general platform or solution for um, EV mobility, um, for uh, passengers mobility, as well as movement of goods or logistics, starting with the lightweight electric vehicles, so two wheelers, but generally um, later, uh, with the with the vision or ambition to expand to three-wheelers and four-wheelers as well
0: and yeah and curious you know how have you you know you're part of the mafia obviously but you know has that how has that helped you in terms of let's say fundraising for phoenix or you know hiring people you know how has that kind of worked out in terms of plugging into that ecosystem of ex-kareem person of people
1: yeah, I think uh, like one great thing is that there is um, instant recognition from the market and from the investors. So it uh, definitely helps uh, open the doors, but ultimately what really matters is uh, what you're trying to do and uh, how you would, um, your ability to you know convince the investors around how you would execute on that vision and why it's a great idea. But it definitely helps with contacts and with opening the doors, uh, both on the investment side, as well as uh, when you're looking for talent. I would say like um, on the talent front, probably even more so, Um, that that network is really valuable in uh, knowing the right people for a given role or um, like even convincing them to join you.
0: And to your point about unit economics, so what are some things that you're doing at Phoenix that maybe you weren't able to do at at CERC?
1: Yeah, so um, Europe is generally very challenging when it comes to um, operations um, involving blue collar workforce or labor. So uh, from labor, like regulatory side, uh, Europe is more difficult. gulf is relatively easier to navigate um, in that sense uh, but that's like generally speaking um, one of the things that we have done is um, at phoenix that we were relatively more conservative in how much uh, operational workforce to hire so like it, it it's more commensurate to uh, the needs um in uh, for the first time around i would say like at circ uh, we were quite ambitious and uh, or we overestimated how much how many people we would need how much we would scale um, we didn't account for the winter that well <laughs> so in winter uh, the overall business goes down but uh, you also need to really have elasticity on uh, your operations side uh, to be able to reduce the expenses or match expenses to revenues Um, And then on hardware side also, we have done well, better. Um, The whole industry has because the first generation or like earlier generations of vehicles had uh, less reliability. Um, So those are some of the things. Also on tech side, um, having the experience of uh, doing things before means that uh, you're more efficient uh, second time around. So our tech team is very nimble. Um, We have engineers and Pakistan, mostly in Karachi, a fairly small team, and we have executed uh, things really, really well. I would say we um, um, also like a lot of learnings from the Kareem days. Also, when we generalized from ride hailing to a uh, super app, there was a lot of rewrite needed, um, and a lot of it was because things were not done uh, to in in a way where you had a lot of building blocks or things were not as modular um you didn't for example you didn't have a user profile that could be easily used from ride hailing to let's say food delivery so uh, there were lots of learnings there as well so we applied those to this time around and that meant that we had fewer false starts we were a lot more efficient in building a super app like platform so lower capex,
0: um, lower overheads, also you know faster development cycles, um, which in, in turn low, less overheads, I guess. but um on the utilization side, um and is demand was demand in, or is demand an issue or when you're starting out?
1: Yeah, one good thing about micromobility is that um it has it's great from a consumer demand perspective. um you don't need to spend. Much on marketing, uh, because you have these assets out there and they uh, market themselves. So folks who want to use um, these two-wheeler vehicles, they see them, they download the app, um, and they get going with that. Um, add the credit card, unlock the vehicle, and ride. And um, so there is there isn't that much convincing you need to do in this space um your operation side and like being capex efficient and those things matter a lot more but you do need to still um, build a lot in the platform um, along loyalty and rewards because obviously uh, there is competition out there too and you want to have your users uh, use your app preferentially so um, you you do need to do a lot of work on the promo side or on rewards or loyalty front, or having packages or plans, uh, but in terms of service discovery or like introducing your service to the potential consumer, uh, the one superpower that micro mobility space has that you have to do very little um, in in those areas,
0: because your your units themselves are kind of your I mean they're billboards for your service. In fact, Right, and exactly. people see them using it, et cetera. It's like okay, that makes uh, and it's quite, I mean, popularized now, isn't it? Um,
1: for yeah. sure. Um, there are there are differences uh, between different countries too. So, for example, it's a lot more popular in um, certain European countries, in Korea, for example, in certain Central Asian cities. Um, in Dubai, also, it's fairly popular, but it varies uh, between cities. So, so I would say like. Uh, per day rides are fewer in the gulf than you would see in some of the top countries or cities but it has a little bit to do with the density of the cities too
0: makes makes sense um and then i just want to touch on your angel investing so i, I know you have an angel portfolio um do you have a like a philosophy or an approach to this in terms of specific sector stages types of investments
1: yeah it has changed uh, over the years uh, so i started out like most of the range of investors started with the FNF, friends and family sort of investment. So invested in people that I worked with or like friends, um, and I really believed in them. But over time, um, as I have invested outside of the FNF group, um, I have evolved the strategy a bit. Um, one of the things that is important is uh, for, for de risking or or increasing the odds of ROI um, is to not take PMF risk. So it uh, should be something that is uh, more or less known to work or has been demonstrated to work. Um, And then there's the aspect of like um, adding more to it or customizing it, localizing it, um, evolving it, extending it. Um, So there, obviously you do have to do experiments But the whole idea should not uh, be subject to proof. Um, So this kind of uh, signal you can either get uh, by the fact that there is an institutional investor, or by looking at the numbers themselves. So now I invest uh, only like tip almost exclusively in uh, startups that have some proof point already, um, either in the form of institutional investor or they have taken off to some extent already. And
0: does that relate I mean, how does that translate you know into say metrics? Is it retention rates? Is it LTV to CAC, you know economics, etc.
1: Yeah, I think um it can vary from um, like idea to idea. Um but um, yeah low 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 CAC for example high L T V those are fairly strong indicators but at least one fairly strong kpi and and uh, uh, the retention rates um, are better than acquisition obviously um, so like you can you may be able to acquire a lot of customers but if retention is a challenge then in the long run it would it may not work very well on um, like you know, on the philosophy question one other thing um, maybe like uh, a given But uh, it has to be something uh, tech-centered or tech-enabled. Because that's how you really get the leverage and increase the odds of uh, a bigger uh, ROI. Tech-led. Yes. Absolutely.
0: Awesome. I think we'll have to end here today, but IQ, you know, thank you so much for, for taking the time. Uh, you know, we were supposed to have this a month ago, but um, IQ had a baby girl. So hence we had to delay, but congrats IQ on, on thank the new you. addition thank to your you family. So uh, everyone, really you know, everyone, please do give him his uh, well wishes as well or your well wishes as well. Uh, but looking thank forward you. to, you know, staying in touch, hopefully meeting at some point in the near future, somewhere in the world. Uh, but, but thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, IQ, definitely
1: And feel free to reach out anytime through email, WhatsApp or LinkedIn and uh, appreciate the opportunity.